following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! Welcome to the Forbes Sports Money Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Ozanian. On this show, we talk about the business of sports. It is my privilege today to have Sal Galatioto as my guest. Sal is the president of Galatioto Sports Partners. That's just a fancy headline for saying he runs the biggest sports banking company in the United States, probably North America or maybe the world. Who knows? Oh, my but- God. You're killing me here with that. <laughs> Sal, yeah, thanks nice a lot. Introduction. Yeah, nice introduction. <laughs> well, People that actually think I know what I'm talking about now, I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, listen, the first time I ever met you personally, you were working for, I think it was Lehman. Yeah, and, I was. Uh, <laughs> so I, I go down, I was asking all these questions. I was with Financial World at the time, and you were like, come down to my office and we'll talk about it. And I was like, all right, I was trying to value sports teams in one of those early years. So I go down there, and I... As I'm approaching your office, you're sitting in your chair and you got this big bat, baseball bat, and you're holding it in both hands. And I'm kind of like, oh, this is going to be a great meeting. I said, uh, this, this, I can't recall ever walking into some guy's office and he's got a baseball bat he's wielding in his hand. But here we are, like, uh, I don't know, 15, 17 years later, and you're still talking to me. So uh, it I couldn't have been that First bad. of all, being at Lehman Brothers, you needed a baseball bat. <laughs> To protect yourself from the other people. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's been fun. It's been a nice ride, right? Yeah, it's been. Certainly over that time, we've seen the business of sports and, of course, ultimately the value of teams just skyrocket. Uh, you know, it's it's been absolutely amazing. I, I think the first year we valued teams at Financial World – the Yankees were the most valuable team, I think, at $250 million. And you probably couldn't buy them for anything less than $5 billion today if you had the money. Yeah, probably uh, right. You know what? I remember we used to look at NBA teams, right? And they'd sell for $60 million. Can you imagine that? It's crazy. Right? Now the Clippers sold for $2 billion. Absolutely amazing, and and I remember I was talking to a guy when I was reporting that story out. Not you, some other guy. He worked for one of what was then, I think, the big eight accounting firms, which then went to the big four, which I don't even know if they're around anymore. <laughs> they're the big two now. <laughs> the big two. And I said, you know, God, these values seem high. Could anything stop the escalation in, te- in, in team values? And, and he goes, oh, he says, TV she says the TV revenues aren't going to keep increasing it the way that they have been, <laughs> you know. And, and, and you know, I mean, I, look, you know, people have been saying that for years now, and of course, it just doesn't seem to happen. Well, look, at some point, uh, the growth is going to slow. We know that, right? But right now, there's an incredible, unprecedented demand to buy these assets, especially NFL, uh, NBA, you know, and and. Major League Baseball as well. I mean, depending on the on the market and the team, uh, but but valuations have just gotten 
crazy. I mean, look look at what's happening in Miami uh, and where we, you know, we hear the bids are, right? We're talking about for the Marlins, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about it. If I would have told you a year ago that there were bids at a billion two for the Marlins, would you have believed that? I mean, that's incredible. No, in fact, I still, I still kind of find it hard to believe, actually. I mean, I in our last baseball team valuation – which I think was, I want to say, in March or April of this year, we had the Marlins at $940 million. Right. And now, uh, based on my reporting and other reports, you're hearing there are two or three groups out there, Jorge Moss. There's another group with uh, uh, Jeb Bush. And I guess Tag Romney's out of that group now. That's, That's at least what I'm hearing. And the gentleman from Quadrangle, I think, he's the big money in that group. Those two groups are apparently well over a billion dollars, uh, 1.1 um, to 1.2. And then some people say Derek Jeter's still alive, although uh, from what I can tell, he doesn't really have a group with real money together at this point. Um, but this whole process with the Marlins has been kind of crazy. I mean, you go back. David Sampson, the stepson of the owner, Mr. Loria, has been, and the president of the Marlins, has, from the beginning, been in charge of the sale process. He's never hired a sports banker. And he was telling people, like, a year or so ago, he was going to get $1.8 billion. Where he got that number from, I actually have no idea. <laughs> and then uh, I know he had a handshake agreement with uh, uh, the in-laws of, of – our president, Donald Trump, for $1.6 billion, but that was a crazy deal. First of all, one of the guys involved in, I guess the guy putting up the money is an ex-con. And, uh, <laughs> and then there was going to be a paying kind of, uh, instead of cash, part of the deal was going to involve real estate. So that was never going to fly with Rob Manford, the uh, commissioner of MLB. And then it went to like one four one three. From what you're hearing, where does this deal sit right now? You know, Mike, um, I don't know. Uh, I, I think there are three groups still looking at it, if you believe that Jeter's uh, still in it. And, uh, you know, the deal's been on the market for a long time, and that kind of what, what starts to happen is it gets stale, right? Uh, I think everyone just wants it to close. I don't know why it's not. You know, the, the you can see the groups fragment. They reform. People move from one group to another. It's um, it's it's a process like none other. I've never seen a process like this, and you know I've been doing this since the mid '90s. Um, but look, we know it will sell at some point. Uh, what the price point will be, I have no idea. Uh, but you're right. I think all the bids are over a billion. At least that's what I've read. Uh, I'm not directly involved in that transaction. Um, but it's it's really a strange deal. How long, uh, you know, we have a wealth team here that compiles uh, the Forbes 400 rich list and our billionaires list. And it seems to me, based on the huge losses that the Marlins are having, uh, they're hemorrhaging money like crazy, even with the excess of $30 million they get in their annual welfare check from Major League Baseball. <laughs> you know. Interesting description, but yes, I would agree. And they've got, I don't know, close to $400 million, I mean, how, how, in debt. How long can Loria survive? Because he's not 
you know, he's not on any of our rich lists. Uh, and by all accounts, he's he's not a wealthy individual as team owners go. So it would seem to me he'd have to sell this thing, you know, by the end, before next season for sure. Well, look, you would think that, look, I don't know his personal financial position. Uh, obviously, if he can continue to borrow against the team and Major League Baseball lets him, he can hang on as long as he can continue to borrow, right? If if banks think that the thing's worth a billion two, right, and there are three real bids at that area, would you lend 50 cents on the dollar? You probably would. And if it's got $400 million in debt, he's probably got some time. But at some point, it does have to be sold. Or the financial dynamics of the team have to change a lot. Um, and the only way you do that, I guess, is reducing payroll and increasing revenues in some way. And that's hard for them to reduce payroll because, you know, it's the, the, their, their contracts are public information. And for their superstar Stanton, I mean, the, a lot of these contracts are back ended. In other words, they increase over time. So he, he's on the hook for a lot of money that he's not going to be able to, uh, so that he's not going to be able to decrease his payroll. Uh, and if he were, if he were to trace uh, trade out John Carlos Stanton, I mean. Who's going to go watch the team? So he's, it seems like there's sort of between a rock and a hard place there. They were in a tough spot, but but think about it. They have, I think, the lowest attendance in the league. So if you could move that contract, it would save you a ton of money. And and how much more is it going to impact your attendance? Right? Uh, uh, from that point of view, uh, look, I believe it's going to be sold. I believe one of these three groups or somebody will buy it. Look, a buyer always shows up and... And what happens is, over time, if you don't get the price you want, the price goes down, until, and the market's going to determine what it's worth. Right now, it looks like those three groups are really vying pretty hard to get this thing. Uh, but you said it. There's been a lot of movement and you know a lot of strange happenings around this thing. You know, hopefully, it'll get done soon because you know it's not good to have a major league baseball team or any sports franchise on the market for, for too long. You know, the, the deal gets stale, people lose interest, and people with a lot of money have a lot of other things to do than just hang around and, and wait for these things. And, you, you know, you've obviously dealt with the leagues a lot over the years uh, in representing either buyers or sellers of sports teams. What is it that the leagues look for? You know, what what is a Rob Manford and, and what are the other 29 owners of Major League Baseball looking for in a prospective buyer of the Marlins? I, th- I think they're looking for somebody who's got deep pockets, who can turn this thing around, who will invest in it. Uh, you know, the the team has a new building. Uh, it doesn't have a naming rights deal on it, so that's one of the things you want to go out and get. Um, you want somebody who improves the team, because don't forget, you mentioned that they're a big recipient of revenue sharing. I believe they're the largest recipient of revenue sharing. So the big market teams can't be too happy about that. But the other thing you're not too happy about is if the team is not very good, when they come to your building, nobody's going to want to come and watch them, right? So you get the double whammy. You're paying a bunch of money in revenue sharing, and then when they come to your building, nobody comes. So you want somebody who's going to rebuild the brand from the ground up, rebuild the farm system, and has deep enough pockets to do that, you know, and, and fund the operating losses until, you know, until that turnaround comes. And, and, and by the way, you know, I, I think I'm uh, – uh, on on the record, I'm a huge fan of the new commissioner. I think he's terrific. I really do. So I, I really want this to work out for him. And I think the way it works in baseball is the home team uh, keeps all the gate receipts, but 
later on, in terms of the way the revenue sharing system works, they split like a third of the revenue, and then there's a sort of a supplemental plan on top of that. So you could be giving up uh, up to 48% of your local revenue, net of what your uh, uh, local expenses are. Um, so, uh, you know, this is not only bad for teams in terms of the league, in terms of the lack of the revenue the Marlins generate at their park, but it, it's also bad in the sense that it's, it hurts the entire league because, you know, let's face it, it, it puts them more on the hook on this revenue-sharing system. Yeah, you want look, you want all your franchises to be stable. You want them to be relatively competitive. And, and the other thing is, as, as, as something like this drags on, right, you're getting to the trade deadline, right? So they have decisions to make. What do they do? Who do they trade? I mean, who makes those decisions if you're just about ready to sell the, the team, you know? You want to get this thing closed as quickly as possible. You do. It's not good for anyone to have it sitting out. And if your manager Don Mattingly right now, or or even the players, you know, it's got to wear on you too. After a while, they, you know, they always say it doesn't affect the managing job or it doesn't affect how the players perform. But I would think after a while, it's got to wear you out. Oh, Mike, any company, right? Could you imagine working for a company and you're knowing it's you know it's on the market, you don't know what's going to happen to you, your job, uh, you don't know, right? That's got to be stressful. It is it's stressful in any business, but in sports, it's got to be even more stressful. A lot, especially for the front office people and the, and the people who do the operations and everybody else. Sal, I've, I've never been to Marlins Park. Um, I don't know if you have, but as I've been reporting the Marlins sale out, it's funny. Some people talk about Marlins Park and, and they uh, say it's a plus in the sense that, you know, it's relatively new. It's a great park. As you point out, the economics could be approved with a naming rights deal getting somebody to pay, who knows what they can get, maybe $5 million a year, $7 million a year, I, I'm not even sure. Uh, but on the other hand, a lot of people have mentioned that the location isn't the greatest. Um, have you been down there, and do, do you have a take on Marlins Park in terms of the location? You know, I haven't been there, but I've heard what you've heard, that the, that the stadium itself is a beautiful stadium, but it's not easy to get to, um, and it's not easy to get to for a lot of uh, the areas where people have high per capita income, right? So you're drawing people from north of Miami and other areas around Miami, and apparently it's difficult to get to. I've never, I've never been there. Um, something I'd like to do in the future, but I've just never gotten around to it. You know, the, we're always focused on numbers, 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 and the economics of these teams. Um, but how much does location actually matter? You know, all else being equal, you know, a city like Miami, for example, you know, uh, versus a city if it was in the Midwest. Does location have a big impact on price? Mike, demographics is the number one thing you want to look for. Maybe not so much like in the NFL where you're playing eight home games, <clears throat> but in Major League Baseball where you're playing 162-game schedule, 81 home dates, demographics is everything. If you're in, a, if you're in an area like, let's take the Bay Area, for example, where you have very high per capita income, you have a lot of corporate headquarters, um, you have population growth. You know you're in you're in really good shape, right? Because you can sell a lot of luxury suites and high priced tickets. You're going to get a good naming rights deal. Uh, it's an attractive place to live. In other places, in in smaller markets, it's more difficult, right? And you just don't have that. So and you can't change demographics. That's that's a big big issue. You know, people look at the Miami market 
And the first thing you think of is it's a high growth market. Well, that's true to a certain extent. But then you've got to peel away the onion, right? And it's, it's got a kind of a thin crust of ultra high net worth individuals. And, and guess what? What season of the year is baseball played in? Well, it's this, the summer, right. right? Those people aren't in Miami in the summer. They leave. They go someplace else. You have a lot of retirees. Well, that's great. But those people bring their own baseball teams with them, right? If you've been a Yankee fan for 60 years, you're not going to suddenly become a Marlins fan because you retired in the Miami you know, area. Um, and those people are living on fixed incomes. They don't have a lot of money to spend. So you have to really peel away the onion at the demographics to really see... And also, there aren't a lot of corporate headquarters in the Miami area. So you really got to look at it very closely uh, to figure out, you know, if, if the team makes sense at a certain price point. The other thing you have to remember is, I mean, how many people have actually grown up and said, I want to be, the, the Marlins are my team, right? And they've become billionaires. Not very many. It's not like the Yankees or the Dodgers or the Cubs or the Giants. I mean, that doesn't happen, right? You don't, you don't have people, a lot of people who are ingrained Marlin fans, and you have to, you have to kind of rebuild that um, over time. It's hard. And plus the team, you know, the team is, you know, it's, it's got an image issue, which it's got to resolve. You know, mm-hmm. it's, got, it's got to be rebranded, I guess. So, and that's going to take time and effort. You know, it, it is. It can be done. It can absolutely 100% be, be done. But it's hard work. It's not as easy as it looks. All right, Sal. So let's go someplace where there is a lot of money, and 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 where the weather's nice too. Let's go to L.A. Now it's public knowledge that uh, you're working with the owners of the Dodgers on perhaps selling a very small piece of that team. Um, and my sources tell me you recently flew back. Uh, so, you know, as the saying goes. So um, you know, listen. I know you're involved in that deal and my god though i mean how lucky must you be i mean the dodgers right now they're the best team in baseball as we sit here today um they have players that are i mean are one of the few national brands in major league baseball and uh i think you've really i can't imagine this is going to be hard for you to do well thanks (laughs) (laughs) i appreciate that we we were actually out there. It was it, first of all, we were out there Monday night. Uh, they were playing the Twins, right? So not a traditional rival. The weather was beautiful. The stadium looks great. They had about forty five thousand people on a Monday night to watch the Twins. Uh, we we were, we we took an investor out there to to meet the team. I mean, look, that's the difference, right? It, it's L.A. You have a ton of corporations, high per capita income. The Dodgers are a legendary brand. You know, right up there, maybe not at Yankee level, but pretty damn close. Um, they have a, the building's beautiful. It's been renovated. It looks great. Uh, and the climate is great. I mean, think about it. When you're in the Northeast or in the Midwest, the early month, the first month of the season is, you know, it's a chore to get out to the games. It's freezing. And late in the season, it, it, you know, it can get pretty awful. But in L.A., the weather's beautiful. I don't know when the heck the last time is that they had a rain out. I mean, it was just... And, and they're they're really a great organization. I mean, that's the other thing. You know, they show so well when you bring an investor out and they meet the peop the the the, the owners of the team. They meet they meet the the manager, um, who's just a he's a terrific guy. And 
you know, they have some real personalities and history with the team. It makes the job a lot easier. It just does, right? And if you say Dodgers, people have an image, and it's generally a very positive image. Yeah, I I kind of uh, questioned a little bit after the purchase of the team. You know, they they brought in uh, a very unique and uh, fragmented, I don't know if fragmented is the right word, but uh, diverse uh, ownership group, a lot of different partners. I mean, Magic Johnson, movie producer Peter Goober, who, of course, is one of the majority owners of the Golden State Warriors and and now a Major League Soccer expansion team out in L.A. as well. Um, But they seemed uh, to make all the pieces of the ownership group work and to where they really take in uh, the talents and ideas of all the different owners that they have there. Is is my perception correct? Uh, Absolutely, 100%. I mean... they they not only run it they not they not only run it as a baseball team they run it as a business. I think they understand the value of the Dodger brand. I think they under, they want to expand the Dodger brand, um, and and it's fantastic because the team's been there. You know, most people don't realize they've been there what since 1958. So they have a, a pretty deep roots in the market. Very loyal fan base, um, and I think the partners work together extremely extremely well and. Look, it's like any business, right? If you have good management, the business is going to be successful. If you don't have good management, I don't care if you're selling shoes or running a baseball team, it's just not going to be successful. And they're blessed with a group of people that are able to work together, share ideas, and implement those ideas. And, you know, they've done a great job with the brand. They just absolutely have. And breaking away to say this show is brought to you by the Business Platinum Card from American Express. However you move your business forward, with Business Platinum, it's not about where you are. It's about where you want to take your business next. And nothing helps you like the resources and know-how of the Business Platinum card, backed by the service and security of American Express. Now, their payroll is also uh, very high. I think they have the highest payroll in baseball. They do. And, And the team is going to lose money, as I understand it. When when you bring in a minority owner or a potential minority owner, what are the key things are they cognizant of? Because I'm thinking if I'm a minority owner and I'm looking at the Dodgers, am I concerned that I may have to help fund uh, net losses with capital calls and put some cash in? Well, if you look at the payroll of the Dodgers... Um and the payroll runoff, and the fact that they have one of the best minor league systems in baseball, and you look at how some of the younger players have come up and just done great, um, there's a very good story to tell with that payroll runoff that that team is going to be cash flow positive in the near future. And I think once they reach that point, they're going to just start making more and more money. Uh, because they did what they had to do initially, because the team, when they took it over, it was pretty much of a mess. Uh, they bought it, you remember, they bought it out of bankruptcy. Um, so they needed to build a team up. They needed to rebuild the farm system. In the interim, they needed to sign pretty big contract players to keep the team competitive because that's what they wanted to do. But as those contracts run off, they're replacing those contracts with players coming up through their own farm system, and it's worked very, very well. And, you know, I, I think if you look at their business plan, you know, which I obviously can't discuss in detail, as that payroll runs off, this team is going to be very cash flow positive. So, and I, I don't think I've had a single investor really question that. 
Well, they have that huge uh, uh, $8 billion plus long term TV deal with Time Warner Cable. That doesn't so hurt. That would, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that's a nice thing to have to underpin your, your finances. Um, so, you know, really, as, as the backbone there, uh, their revenues are certainly set for a while. And yeah. as you pointed out, they're going to be the leader or, or certainly among the leaders in attendance this year again. Yep. So uh, they're, they're really raking in the dough. And look, I, I have to think, um, you were involved in with Tom Ricketts when he bought the Cubs. I don't know, what was that, in 2009 or something like yeah, that? Yeah, that was one of the toughest deals ever to get done. Think think about what happened during that time. I mean, first of all, that was a phenomenal purchase. And the Cubs are they're, they're a tremendous and iconic brand. But you think about this, okay? During that time period, we had a couple of the leading investment banks file for bankruptcy and go away. We had... Uh, the Tribune companies, which own the Dodgers, uh, the Dodgers, I'm sorry, the Cubs, file for bankruptcy. So we had to actually buy the Cubs and put them through a prepackaged bankruptcy and buy them at a 363 sale so that we could get away from all the liabilities of the Tribune companies. The banking system was in extremis. So the biggest banks in the United States were really reluctant to lend. And Tom was phenomenal. I mean, through all that, hung in there. You know, he knew what he wanted. He had his eye on the prize, and you know, we we did get that done. But that was a really tough deal, not because of what we were buying, but because of the economic conditions at the time, which you know were about as bad as they've been for many, many, many years in U.S. history. Yeah, I, I think that's just it's the only deal that I can remember uh, where during the sale process the price of the team went down strictly because of all the financial calamities that were going on, as, as you just point out, you know, on the macro level, uh, throughout the whole global economy, the financial system had been melting down. And of course, that impacts the net worth of possible buyers and then all the other things that you mentioned. And you well, couldn't borrow. You couldn't borrow. I mean, think about it. We were, we were trying to borrow, you know, because it was a leverage limited partnership structure that the Tribune companies wanted. Um, and it was really tough. I mean, GSP, my, my firm had to step up for the last $50 million to, to close out the deal, to get it done. Um, but what a great deal. I mean, think of, I mean, what the Cubs are worth today. And, and, and the Cubs have always been a profitable team, and what a tremendous brand. And then they go out and win the World Series. I mean, <laughs> go figure. Yeah, his timing was great, right? You buy the team after they haven't won the World Series in like 100 years, and then in the 108th <laughs> year, you know, you, you win it. I was actually uh, out in Chicago about a month ago talking to Tom Ricketts, and, you know, he was, he's such a candid and honest guy, and he was actually saying, you know, that the odds of him not being able to have bought the Cubs would have probably been greater had the financial meltdown not been going on, only in the sense that, you know, he had the the cash, which was badly right. needed, and and it and what was going on probably negatively impacted uh, some rival bidders, which was fascinating. But what I wanted to touch on really was you talk about that deal, which uh, eight hundred forty-five million for the Cubs, Wrigley, and and the team stake in a regional sports network, and and a bunch of you know uh, the par- uh, there, there were a couple of parcels of land around the building, the Triangle parcel, which was the biggest one. Yeah, so you got that too. And then, you know, I think about two years ago, it was reported that he sold some just minority pieces uh, in the Cubs and they're 
terms of renovating Wrigley and, and outside of Wrigley Field with, with some development there. And the valuation was like somewhere near $2 billion. Well, I did that deal for him, and it was over $2 billion, but I can't tell you the exact number. <laughs> then, you'd have, then you'd have to kill me, right? I'd have to kill you and everybody listening to the podcast. <laughs> but, but, but again, I, I guess I'm circle, using the Cubs to kind of circle back to the Dodgers because some people may be sitting there listening to this saying, well, why would you only buy, want to buy a 1% or 2% stake in a, in a baseball team other than to be able to be guaranteed to have a luxury box seat? But the the answer to that is you can if it's the right team you can participate in some great value appreciation. Oh my God! Can you imagine? L- listen, let's think about this. I mean, when George Steinbrenner bought the Yankees, he put in a million dollars, and his limited partners put in a million dollars, and CBS took back a note for the rest. Right? That was less than ten million dollars. <laughs> How would you like to have been one of the limited partners, <laughs> George's limited partners, at the beginning? Hey, but oh my God. that's, that's I mean, one of the great. That's one of the great stories ever. Because I think you probably know this history better than me. He also got like two parking lots or two yeah, parking garages, yeah, which which would have knocked the purchase price from ten to eight million dollars. And then he gets that insane. He, I think it was one of the first huge TV deals that deal with Cablevision. Yep. We're, we're, I don't even remember what it was amount. It was it was a huge amount of money, by far the biggest of its time. And I think as the general partner, he then used the money from that cable deal to start to buy out his other partners and pump money into the Yankees and yep. and people that couldn't – his small partners that couldn't uh, put money, you know, basically he bought them out. And, and now I think the Steinbrenner family owns like 60% of the Yankees or something like that. You know what, George – George was, and I worked with George on a number of deals. We helped the Yankees buy the Nets and sell the Nets, buy the Devils, sell the Devils. We financed the startup of the S Network. George was a genius. I mean, George, uh, George, I love George. I mean, George was tough when you worked for him. He was really demanding, but he was demanding of himself, too. You know, he wanted to get things done. He was just an unbelievable character. He's one of a kind. George should be in the Hall of Fame. Nobody talks about the business acumen of George Steinbrenner. You, you always get this great, you know, debate. You know, a lot of people talk about his temper and he fly off the handle and hire and fire managers, you know, at a whim. And other people say, yeah, but, you know, he brought the world championship to the Yankees after a long drought and CBS owned them. They were pathetic and, you know, and all of that. But from a business point of view, it's really hard to find somebody that was smarter than he was when you, when you look at what he was able to accomplish uh, with, with the Yankees. It's, it's it was incredible, Mike. It was incredible. Think about it. He bought that team. They drew 973,000 people a year before he bought it. People were saying it's in a bad neighborhood. It's an old stadium. You know, but you know what George got? The value of the Yankee brand. The Yankee brand had tremendous value. It had been run down by CBS. But it did have a fan base there. It was a dormant fan base. But he knew if he put a quality product on the field, people would come. People would want to watch it. People would pay to watch it. He's one of the earliest people. He really invented the regional sports network. I mean, he did. I mean, he, the guy was just, he was an incredible, incredible person. He really was. I mean, uh, I still have a picture of George and I on my credential, which I'm looking at right now. And, and he was one of the, the greatest businessmen in sports. Or not. And I just, I'll just put this full disclosure out there. Uh, I'm co-host, along with Bob Lorenz, of a TV show on that regional sports network called Forbes Sports Money. 
uh, and of which from time to time, Sal is a guest. So, yeah, you know, I never so thought it about it because I helped finance the, the thing. When, it, when we financed it, it didn't have, it was in litigation with MSG, if you remember. It had no carriage. All it had was the rights to, to, view, uh, to show the Yankee games. And we stepped up for a huge amount of money on the debt side uh, to get it going. And I never really thought about that, that now I'm on it with you sometimes. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Your loan helped my job. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Hey, by the way, I always want to ask you. So, uh, I think Goldman was uh, about a third of the equity, roughly speaking, at the time. You, why didn't Lehman go in on the equity side? I mean, uh, imagine what the value of that deal would. You know, the, the S network itself. I think was sold to uh, when it was the control of it, eighty uh, percent. You got to rub it in, right? I have you to. Gotta, rub you got to rub it in. <laughs> That's not the only reason, but it's decisions like that that do influence your future. I mean, that was a phenomenal deal. The equity in that thing was a phenomenal deal. Oh, yeah. The uh, enterprise value uh, just came back to me now when uh, News Corp, Fox, uh, bought bought the 80% was uh, $3.9 billion, and that was like two years ago. Yeah, thank you for (laughs) reminding me of that. And thank you for reminding me that I didn't get any of the upside. Thanks. <laughs> I feel really good now, Mike. I think I'm going to go hang up and go into the bathroom and cry for a no, while. No, no, no. Not yet. Not yet. We're going to... No, s- you're killing me. You can't be doing saying stuff like that to me. <laughs> well, it was your bosses, Sal. It wasn't you. you know, no, you were... it was my bosses. But if I would have been more convincing I, or held a gun on them, I might have gotten them to do it. <laughs> Um, before we leave the Dodgers, uh, I, I read, I think it was in Sports Business Journal within the last week, that they're selling the naming rights uh, for, I want to say it was around 10 or $12 million a year, somewhere around there, which seemed like a very good price. Now, uh, I don't know whether that story is true or not. I can't remember if they had confirmed it with the team. But but assuming that's true, and they're a very good publication, Sports Business Journal. They are. um, uh, Does that tell you anything about how easy it would be or what type of price you may be able to get for the Dodgers in terms of a high end or low end? Where, Where does that naming right sort of sit in in terms of baseball stadiums? I mean... It, it, it's relatively high, but don't forget, they're not going to change the name of the building from Dodger Stadium. Ah, So okay. it's going to be something field at Dodger Stadium or something else. I haven't seen the specifics of that deal. Look, we, we have a target price where we're going to you know, sell limited partnership stakes at. We haven't gotten anybody pushing back on that price. So I think we're going to get it done. Obviously, it takes time to get people approved by Major League Baseball. Everybody wants to go out and meet the owners. You can only take investors out one at a time. You're going to be going to L.A. a lot, I get a feeling. Yeah, I am going to be going to L.A. a lot, but there are worse, you know, I mean, there are worse places to go, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, if I was smarter, I'd be going there in the winter, but, you know, intelligence has never been one of the traits that people have seen in me. Yeah, you know what? That's a great point, though, that they're not changing the name in entirety. You know, it's it's only because they would have gotten uh, more money, no doubt, had it just oh, been the name yeah, of the absolutely. sponsor. Well, think yeah, of, yeah, what do you think well, Yankee Stadium would be worth? If you would change their name or Wrigley Field, 
Right. But you I, can't do it. You can't you can't change Fenway or Wrigley or Yankee Stadium or Dodger Stadium. I think you'd have a revolution on your hands right. from the fans. And I wouldn't advise it either because those are iconic brands and you want them, you know, you're not going to change the name of Fenway Park or Wrigley Field or, or Yankee Stadium or Dodger Stadium. You just, you're just not. And taking a break to say there's this place in Bali where you can play 18 holes next to an active volcano. There's this fountain in Miami that goes off with every home run. There's this subway line in New York that'll take you straight to both arenas. There's an exciting and thrilling world waiting, and no other card lets you experience it like the business platinum card from American Express, backed by the service and security of American Express. There are 120,000 unsolved murder cases in America. It was the next day that I found out from my parents what had happened, that my sister was killed. Each one is called a cold case. Sometimes you have to look really closely to find the evidence. Damn, I, I killed her. Damn it, I killed her. Cold Case Files, the podcast. Garcia is walking into the home of a real monster. I was nervous. I realized what kind of person I was dealing with. It's a goosebump moment. Download new episodes every Tuesday on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! Let's switch over to the hardwood, Sal, and there are two teams, at least two, that I know of that are on the market right now, the Brooklyn Nets and the Houston Rockets. Um, The juxtaposition of those two teams, in my mind, couldn't be greater, more extreme. In other words, the Nets have been losing a lot of money uh, on an operating basis. You know, the team right now is marginally profitable, but with those big pilot bond payments on Barclays Arena when you combine it with the arena you know it's it's it, there's a net loss there but yet you got that you have Brooklyn you have the New York market uh you're right near Wall Street on the other hand Houston I realize it's like the fifth biggest market yep. it's it, it's it's uh the economy's good down there uh and you have a team that's insanely profitable and and the nets while the nets are terrible and I can't see how they're going to be good any time in the next couple of years, thanks to that Kevin Garnett trade where they basically traded 9,000 first-round picks for Garnett. Uh, you know, the Rockets have a really, really good team. I mean, it's it's hard to see them not, you know, being at least the two- or third-round playoff team in the next couple of years. How do you contrast the two? If you're going out to sell them, you know, uh, what's the contrast – where is the contrast favorable? Is it more for the Rockets? Is it more for the Nets? Oh, it's got to be for the Rockets. You said it. They have a very competitive team. Uh, and I'll be kind to the Nets, but I don't see the Nets going to the NBA Finals anytime soon. Um, the Nets uh, the Nets don't have something that Houston does have. Houston had Yao Ming there for many years. They are the most popular NBA brand, maybe the most popular sports brand in China. So I believe, although I don't know, I mean, they just announced that they're going to sell this thing, what, a week ago, uh, that they're going to get a lot of interest from the Far East. Now, I know 
that the Chinese government is limited, uh, funds flows out of the country, and et cetera, et cetera. But I think that if you had the right buyers looking at, at something like Houston, I think they, they might you know, be able to, to pull that off, get the money out of the country. Uh, there's going to be a lot of interest internationally uh, and nationally for the Rockets. Rockets are profitable. They have a very competitive team. They're in a really good market, you know, fifth largest market in the United States. So I think that's going to be one that's there's going to be real demand for. The Nets have been on the market for a while, as you know. Um, it's a limited partnership stake uh, that's for sale. Um, and, you know, it, it's tough. It's tough when you look at the team. Historically, they haven't made a lot of money. Um, it's Brooklyn, so you're going to get interest because it is Brooklyn. It's New York metropolitan area. They have a relatively new building. But the team performance is not one that you can turn around very quickly. Um, so, you know, it's been out there for a while. It's gotten significantly less interest than I think Houston will get. I think Houston's going to get a ton of interest. If they sold today, which would sell for the higher valuation, do you think? I may be on the buy side in one of those uh. transactions. So about $4. <laughs> You know, uh, by the way, you know, uh, I I, um, I found out just the other day and actually wrote a post uh, for this on, on Forbes.com that Prokhorov has gotten approval from one of the committees in the NBA to separate his interest in the team from the lease to the Barclays Center. So, in other words, it would sort of be a carve-out like when the 76, when Comcast Spectacor sold the 76ers. Right. They the, the new buyer, Josh Harris of the 76ers, got a new lease with Comcast. But the, the league has to approve this, uh, and the Board of Governors still still will have to approve this, but it's, it's all but a done deal uh, because this advisory committee has approved it. They have, they want, the, the, the league has to go through this process because they, they don't want whomever may buy the team to be saddled with a very bad lease economically where they're right. paying high right. rent and getting, like, you know, very little revenue. Uh, right. So... My thought was, uh, and I was able to verify that uh, with a spokesperson for Mikhail Prokhorov, the, who now owns both the team and the controls the lease to the Barclays Center. And I, but in my mind, I'm thinking, if he does something like this, that tends to lead me to believe that he would at least be open to the idea of selling all of the team. In other words, you already mm-hmm. pointed out that. You know, and this has been reported as public information that, you know, he's been trying to sell a minority stake in the team for, for many, many months now with, with uh, no interest, at least not on the, at the price that he's been looking at, which right. I'm assuming is more than the $1.7 he paid for everything to buy out uh, Bruce Ratner. But at least this suggests to me maybe he may be inching towards the notion or open to the notion of, of selling all of the Nets, all of the basketball team. Yeah, that, look, that may be, and look, if you get the right offer, you have to look at it, right? Uh, how much fun can he be having owning that team, given the fact that the team's not very competitive? Um, but, but, you know, I can't tell, I don't know what he's thinking, but that's, that's an interesting, you know, an interesting observation you made about them bifurcating these two things, because it would make it easier for somebody to step up and, and buy control of the team. The upside for an NBA team now, I mean, they're, they're long-term 
media deal with Turner and ESPN is locked in. I think that they just finished the first season of that. And right. I want to say it was like a 12-year deal uh, for an average of around $2.67 billion a year. Mm-hmm. Not a bad increase, by the way, over the $930 million they were getting, huh? No, not at all. It's great. Is the is the international side uh, where the growth is for the NBA? Oh, I believe absolutely. Uh, look, there are only two global sports. Let's be honest: soccer and basketball, right? Um, and the NBA is popular in, in you know all over the world. I mean, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, East Asia, uh, and think about it: it's the most international league in North America. It has more players from more countries than any other league, probably all the other leagues combined. So it gets a lot of visibility. The NBA will continue to grow internationally, I believe. Um, The demographics are great because their demographics skew younger than the other sports, and they have a lot of star power. And the league's exciting. Look at at the playoffs uh, the last few years. You know, now... You know, some people say that Golden State's dominance is not a good thing for the league. Maybe, maybe not, but there are going to be other teams that that are going to be able to challenge in the coming years. And if they can get, you know, some of their larger markets that haven't had competitive teams start to develop competitive teams like New York and, well, good luck with that, but hopefully uh, Philadelphia, uh, Chicago, coming back to Los Angeles, coming back into the market with better and better teams – that's just going to increase ratings and increase fan interest. Uh, and, I, and I, you know, I think the NBA is incredibly well run. Adam Silver's done just a great job. So I'm, I'm really bullish on, on the NBA. By the way, he, he uh, at a press conference the other day, he alluded to the fact that he would be open or the NBA's got to seriously consider expansion. I'm paraphrasing, but that was my takeaway Uh would that surprise you? Does that make sense for the NBA? Well, I mean, there are a couple of markets, one market for sure, where I think the NBA would do incredibly well, and that's Seattle. Now, you've got to get a building built, but, you know, Seattle is a growing market, high per capita income, really good demographics. So that would be one market. I'd have to really think about where else you could put a team. Um, you know, uh, but... But off the top of my head, I, I I can't see one as obvious as Seattle. But potentially, yeah. I mean, they could expand. Um, yeah. I mean, look, look. There's a lot. There's a lot of fan interest in the NBA. You know. You know. I when people ask me if if I follow the NBA, I, I tell them I don't follow professional basketball. I'm a Knicks fan. But. Um, <laughs> But someday they'll even have a professional basketball team in New York. Hey, listen. So the Knicks. Great. The, the Knicks sell out. So wh- why yeah, they, does, why does do Jim Dolan out. have to do anything different? He sells out every single game, and he, you know, what's the incentive for Jim Dolan to get his house in order? Well, that you know what you're right. I mean, when you sell out every game, and it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, you have a huge competitive advantage over everybody else. But on the other hand, that's not good for the league, right? You you want a market like New York to be deep in the playoffs because that's just going to help your ratings. I mean, think about it. How many millions of people live within 75 miles of Manhattan? Right. It's by far the largest market in the United States. And, you know, you want a competitive team in that market. 
In your mind, uh, as you said, of course, uh, before you have a team in Seattle, you'd have to uh, get an arena there. I know they're renovating what used to be the old Key Arena, but right. I would think ultimately you'd want a new arena. Would would a team like the Los Angeles Clippers, who currently play in the Staples Center, which is uh, uh, owned and controlled, run by the owners of the Lakers, um, so they're basically just a tenant there, uh, but it is L.A. Would, would the Clippers be more valuable in, L- in L.A., currently playing at Staples, or if they moved to Seattle and had their own building? Boy, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I think the L.A. market's big enough for both teams. You know, look, Steve has enough um, – Steve, Steve Ballmer has enough money that if he wants to redevelop a new building on his own, he could do it in L.A., and I, I'm sure he could do it very successfully. So – once this lease runs out in Staples, he could probably, you know, do anything he wants. Uh, I don't see him moving the team to Seattle, although Seattle is a very attractive market, and he's from that area. Uh, I think if if anything happens, it'll probably be long run, they'll put up a new building in L.A. Um, you know, you can do it with a basketball team and have other filler content. Right, right. Um, you know, we were talking about uh, the NBA and, and uh, the TV deal and all that. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, if you look at the regular season, the NBA's ratings were down. Yet, in the playoffs, particularly the finals, the ratings were phenomenal. Um, so this leads to Ozanian's theorem, okay? <laughs> Ozanian's theorem is that to have uh, successful TV ratings or in a, in, a, in a league that is followed, it's not as important uh, that you have ba- competitive balance in the league, as it is that you have rivalries. You know, oh, and, I, you got and, it, and, and 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 you I'm got going it. back to you know. I mean, I I can still vividly remember those Celtics Lakers rivalries in oh, the '80s, and, and how that just ter- helped turn the league around. The ratings were phenomenal, and same thing now with Golden State and Cleveland. You know, the last yep. uh, th- three years, right? That they've battled it out. It's been great interest. You have the premier players on both of those teams. So you get tremendous interest nationally. You know, you really have like five teams or something like that in the NBA that are really, really terrific and then kind of everybody else. But since those teams have such phenomenal players and those matchups are so exciting, it's can't miss TV and it really uh, tells you that that's, or tells me that that's what really is the most important thing in terms of driving that TV audience and, and following the league. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, remember the the, the Bird Magic uh, rivalry, um, Lakers-Celtics, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, yes, if you have larger-than-life characters on two teams competing, um, getting to the finals, it's phenomenal. Look, you want high-level competition, and you want those rivalries to really build because it becomes national, the rivalry, rather than, than regional or local, right? So that's what you want, and the NBA has got that right now. You know, it really does. Speaking of the Cavaliers, you know, I, I, I believe you know Dan Gilbert, the owner, pretty well, and I've done some work for them, so uh, I might as well just throw you right into the boiling water here. Yeah, thanks. What's uh, Kyrie Irving, you know— uh, it kind of came out of nowhere about two weeks ago that, that he wanted out. I'm still not clear why. I guess most of the speculation is that he wants to sort of 
rather than being number two on the team behind LeBron James, you know, he wants to go somewhere where he could be number one. Um, this is the second time, it seems to me, that Dan Gilbert's been uh, uh, dealt a blow like this. You know, first was when LeBron James left the right. first time to go to Miami, and, and now this time. Um, do you have any idea on, you know, what he could be thinking right now or what he could do? Because if Kyrie leaves, uh, I, it's tough to see where the Cavs would get equal value from, from someone else. And, and that could jeopardize, to me, the, the rivalry that they have now with Golden State and, and contention for a championship. And I guess after next season... LeBron's a free agent, so he's got to be. I mean, the value of that team really goes up and down with performance because of attendance and, and TV ratings. You know, unlike say the Knicks. Well, yeah. Look, it, it, you're exactly right. And and look at the two markets, right? Cleveland is a relatively small market. It's not a growing demographic. It's not a market that is in high tech or anything else. It's like basically Rust Belt city, great city, but it's not the Knicks, right? If you're the Knicks. Let's be honest, okay? Players leave, the fans are going to keep coming, right? And you have tremendous media revenues. Your local media contract is big because you have so many people, right, that are Knicks fans. Cleveland doesn't have those advantages, so they need to continue to produce a very competitive team or else the value of the franchise will be impacted, not not like in the Knicks case or the Lakers case or in some other cases. So I, I don't know what the players are thinking. I, I, I don't. Uh and I don't know how much of it is, you know, personal feelings or feelings towards management. I, it's very difficult to gauge. But for them, it's really critical that they solve those problems. And obviously, if LeBron were to opt out and go someplace else, um, it would be a real blow to that franchise. Right now, let's, let's, sum, let's sum up uh, the environment right now. Uh, before we let you go, in terms of interest in buying teams, which how would you rank the leagues? Where was there the most interest? And, and I say when I say interest, I mean real guys who can write big checks and buy a team. The NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NHL, uh, Major yeah. League Soccer, uh, okay. you name it. Give, give uh, me look, give me a ranking and a quick reason why. First, the NFL, right? Because of the structure of the NFL, because of the level of shared revenues, um, because, you know, I only have eight games, so it's not a league where you have to be worried about variable attendance. I have more people calling me asking me, is there an NFL team for sale, which they rarely are. All right. So the NFL, if you put an NFL team on the market, you're going to get the most interest, especially the most domestic interest. Now, you're not going to you're not going to get any foreign buyers that are all that interest in American football, okay? I think close behind and closing is the NBA. I think it's tremendous interest from all over the world uh, in the NBA, uh, from East Asia to the Middle East to, you know, M- Mexico, you know, you name it. Uh, there's a lot of interest in the NBA, and the NBA is, I think, closing on the NFL. Uh, and mostly because of what you mentioned before, Mike. You remember you mentioned the in- international interest in the NBA, Well, you don't have that in the NFL, okay? It's very limited. Um, Baseball, it depends on where the franchise is, right? If you're talking about a major market franchise, you know, the major big big four or five cities in the United States, you're going to have bidders out the kazoo, right? You go down to 
the lower end of the spectrum, yes, you will have bidders, but you know it won't be it won't be crazy. And then you get to the National Hockey League. I, I think again, it depends on the market. If you're talking about Montreal, Toronto, you know the original six uh, teams like the Flyers, yeah, you're going to get a ton of interest. If you're talking about teams in the Sun Belt, not as much. Um, and then MLS, really, the interest seems to be in expansion franchises. I don't think any of the established franchises have sold in a long time, so I have no idea what the interest level will be there. Um, and obviously, the same thing goes for European soccer. It's the big names, the big brands that are going to get a ton of interest, and the smaller teams, not so much. And there, there that's clouded with promotion and relegation, too, which makes it much more difficult to value a franchise. By the way... Um before I let you go, Sal, you know, people have been talking about Chinese interest in teams and so forth and, you know, their interest, especially in the NBA. But, you know, as much as I've read about interest in deals that supposedly were going to happen, I, I was thinking about this when we were talking about the Cavs. You know, they were supposedly going to sell a minority stake in their team to Chinese investors. Chinese have been interested in the, uh, in the Brooklyn Nets for a long time. But, but with all this talk, I, I can't recall any actual Chinese investment group coming in and buying a, a significant stake in a team. Not uh, a significant stake, no. Is this, You're right. Is this because of the difficulty of actually getting money out of China? Is it because they are only interested, they being the Chinese, in a controlling stake? Why hasn't this manifested in a way that people have been saying it would for, for several years now? That's a great question. One, I think the Chinese want control, and there aren't a lot of control transactions. And what they want in the United States is basketball. Well, guess what? When an NBA team comes on the market it's in a control sale, you have very, very uh, strong competition. Um, and that competition, look, when, when we were selling the Golden State Warriors, we had one Chinese uh, group that was bidding on it. But the problem was, you also had incredibly wealthy Americans bidding on it. Mm. And if you're a if you're a seller, and the prices are similar between a Chinese bid and a, and a domestic bid, you know you are 100 percent certain that the domestic guy is going to be able to close. You have some doubts about the Chinese, so you may go for the safe option, right? Right. Um, it's just and and then you know people sellers are worried about well approvability and this that and the other thing and getting money out of the country, so they're a little hesitant now. I think that if it's the right franchise, um, you know the Chinese could be competitive. But again, you're going to have to really vet who in China is buying it. You're going to have to vet the possibility that you know, can they get the money out? Do they have significant funds outside of China that they can use to buy the team? I mean, a lot of things have to fall into place, so it's more difficult. But it's always more difficult for any foreign buyer to buy um, a team in the United States. I mean, how many how many foreigners really own uh, U.S. franchises? I guess the one that comes to mind to me is Prokhorov in Brooklyn. Uh, but who else? There was the there was the Seattle Mariners for a number of years, right? Nintendo, right? okay, right. Nintendo, uh, and, and but that uh, that that's no longer it, the right? case, yeah. Yeah, no, ex exactly. I mean, that, that's really my point. Um, very, very interesting. Um, it, it's also tough to get a real handle on how the economy is in China. You know, it's uh, yeah, they, they report exactly certain right. numbers, and you don't know whether they're true or they're not true or how accurate they are. Um, but 
you know, then again, you certainly see them throwing some money around, Indonesian money, uh, buying Inter Milan, the Italian yeah. soccer team, and then a Chi- I think it was Chinese investors recently bought AC Milan. Yeah, they so, did, and then I think some Chinese investors actually took out the uh, the Indonesians in Inter. So it's it can be done, but I mean, in Europe, the the approvability standards that the league subjects you to are much lower than they are here. I mean, here. The, the level of due diligence that Major League Baseball or the NBA or the NFL or you know any of the leagues do is much higher than the leagues do in Europe. So, and that's more daunting, right, to get over all that. All right, everybody, that's Sal Galtiotto. And if you want to watch Sal on the four-time Emmy Award-winning Forbes Sports Money TV show, you can. He'll be on the August show, premiering the third week of August. And it will be seen on the Yes Network and also many of Fox's regional sports networks. And I think even on Fox Sports 1 once. But I think it's well, like 6 o'clock in the morning. I, I, got a, I got a great face for radio, though. <laughs> hey, I'm Sal. <laughs> nah, you're great on TV. You kidding? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I'll see you soon, buddy. All right, pal. You take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it for this episode of Forbes Sports Money. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or question, please email us at sportsmoney at podcastone.com. That's O-N-E dot com. Fantasy football season is here, and we've got the best fantasy football podcast anywhere because we've got the best fantasy football analyst in Evan Silva from rotoworld.com. Make sure you subscribe to the Fantasy Feast podcast so you can hear me, Ross Tucker, get Evan's rankings and draft strategies to give you the edge you need this year. That's the Fantasy Feast podcast, available on the Podcast One app or wherever podcasts are found. At Farmers Insurance, we know the sound of a perfect hot air balloon landing. And a less than perfect one. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is... Tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.